Colonel Mullenberg. I'm in Dane County, and I work with Lisa Johnson. And today is our Ag Reversity Day at the fair. So Lisa's out there with our new electronic digital camera microscope showing specimens, and we have a lot of activities there. Exciting day here, and why don't we go ahead and just do a roll call. Who wants to go first? This is Christy in Rock County. Jane Ankleman in Douglas County. Walt in Portage County. Kevin's here up in Spooner. Hey, Christy's here in Walworth County. Well, sounds like there's about seven of us, so I guess we can get started with our county reports. Any volunteers? I'll start way up in the northwest here. This is Jane in Douglas County. And I think I was just thinking that we're having a pretty easy year insect pest-wise, and I don't know if that's just because I'm not paying attention or what, but I'm interested <laughs> to hear what other people are finding out there. We still consider this a cool, wet season, and that's mostly what we're dealing with. The tomato diseases are really slowly being brought in, so we're lucky that way. We're supposed to get some heat, I guess, here, and that will be wonderful. We might actually have some bell peppers this year. Anyway, mostly it's tree, tree questions people are bringing in. Mm-hmm. Now, I can go for Dane County. I know that down here we've had a lot more of early blight calls. We've had almost 10 in the past month, so those tomato diseases are really coming on strong down here. We've had some calls about maple trees with chlorosis having trouble, some powdery mildew and cucurbit issues, and emerald ash borer also still going strong, being a newly quarantined county down here. So that's kind of how we're doing. This is Christine, Rock County. Not much has changed from last week. Still a lot of tree questions. I have noticed a lot of septoria on the tomatoes. Some maples have already started to show early tar stuff. Well, good morning. This is Christy again in Walworth County. And we haven't had that much of a change either. Typical tomato problems coming in with the septoria and leaf spot and some tree questions coming in. The Asian crazy worm has come into the office, and I have samples of it. Right now it's been confirmed by the DNR. And I talked with Bernadette, and she suspects that we'll see that more. Christy, I haven't posted that yet, but I'm working on getting just a quick post out to the Wisconsin Garden Facebook page. Awesome. And I'm going to keep them here and feed them in case anybody wants to see them firsthand. So they'll be in the office just because they are so similar to a typical worm. And other than that, that's about it. There's millipedes everywhere. And again, like last week, there are mosquitoes that are just crazy. This is Walt in Portage County. My big news for this week is that we have confirmation of spotted wing drosophila here in Portage County just for one week. I've got to find some for a second week before we publish it to everybody, I guess, but we're finding it here. Emerald ash borer seems to be in the neighborhood. I've got several calls on that and haven't made a positive ID there yet, but I think that's inevitable as well. A lot of large tree questions, trees in decline, and issues on that basis, probably environmental, and that's where we are here in Portage County. A lot of rain. Well, that's timely that we have Christelle talking about spotting the trust. Yes, it is. Kevin? Oh, yeah, if nobody else is going to chime in. I'm up in Spooner here, Burnett, Washburn, and Sawyer counties. And trees still are probably our biggest call right now. We had some hail damage, and that polar vortex year from two years ago is still causing issues on mostly conifers, either our native woodlands and edges of fields and driveways, browning needles. So that's still getting people's attention. We've put out press releases on this diplodia shoot blight that our forest health specialist out of Spooner confirmed. 
So we're just trying to remind people of that environmental effects from past winters and storm damage. Apple tree decline, we're still dealing with people wondering why they're seeing apple branches slowly withering and bark splitting and the usual symptoms. And Brian, I'm thinking maybe I should just send you a couple of these samples and then you can confirm that there's nothing going on as far as pathogens and that it's really an environmental cause because people still want to claim that it's fire blight or some kind of disease and they want to spray it to save the tree or keep it from getting worse. Yeah, go ahead and do that, Kevin. We've been seeing a lot of dieback on everything and not finding a lot of pathogens, particularly in the fruit crops. This week was the first time I've actually had a confirmed fire blight sample all season. So go ahead and send those in if you're interested. Okay. Do we have a publication or fact sheet on just basic winter decline and winter injury to... We have a winter burn fact sheet that's probably a little bit more geared towards evergreens, but yeah. that might be of some use. Right. Okay. Let's see, other tree issues, aphids, woolly alder aphid, and just usual aphid stuff and honeydew dripping down on vehicles and sidewalks and that kind of stuff. Blights are, like Jane said, up in Superior. We're not seeing as many as I would anticipate. It could be that we've dodged a bullet a little bit on those, but I'm assuming with our weather patterns, we just got some more rain. It's been humid most of the week. I'm assuming those blights are going to start to get picked up here. Miscellaneous insects, pantry pests. You name it, the usual kind of ID stuff that a lot of our lake property owners like to bring to us. Spotted wing Drosophila, yes, Christelle. It's here again, and I think that's no surprise. We found it last week, and then we're confirming it in backyard, really small patches of raspberries, which kind of surprised me. You think out in the middle of the woods there shouldn't be any of these things, but homeowners are now starting to be aware of the worms in the fruit, so I think it's just a matter of time before those calls start coming into our offices about wormy raspberries. So I've been working with some blueberry growers trying to deal with this new issue as well. So it'll uh, be interesting to hear your report, Christelle. I'm actually not surprised, Kevin, about the homeowners, but we can talk about that later. All right. Have we had anyone else join us? Karen from Eau Claire. Oh, hi. Do you have an update? I do. It sounds like we have some similar problems up here. Maple tree leaves coming in for sure with purple borders, leaf spots, and maybe some anthracnose, spindle galls. And so just walking people through that kind of cosmetic disorder talk. What else do we have? Just a lot of plant ID things coming in too. And we've had lots and lots of rain here. So it seems a little bit off this year just because we're having peas that are finally setting on plants right now. And usually those are done. And then we're harvesting those right along with peppers and some tomatoes are green. I haven't seen any red tomatoes, but things are just a little bit wacky in terms of harvest here in Eau Claire, I think. It's just unusual from what I've seen in the last few years. But all in all, not too many pest problems coming in. I did have a call from a news station that said they were hearing that wasps were in high numbers this year. They said that a pest control company said they were getting more and more calls from homeowners to come um, take care of their wasp problem, but I have not had any wasp calls this year. I usually get a lot of ground bee and wasp questions when it's really dry out, but it's been really wet here, so I don't know what that whole report was about. The local news in Beloit called me with a similar question. They're like, oh, are there more bees and wasps than normal this year? And I was like, not that I know of, so yeah, I don't know what these news stations have picked up on. I don't either. 
This is Diana in Pierce County, and I just echo a lot of what Erin said. We've had a lot of rain, and so the fungi are just partying out there. Lots and lots of spots and lesions and tomato early blight types of issues, and lots of weeds, obviously. We're having a largest weed contest at the fair, and I think we're going to get some records in there this year with everything. Lots of tree questions, and chlorosis showing up, I think. Just all the rain is inhibiting nutrient uptake as well as washing nitrogen out of the soil. So other than mosquito issues, that's about it. All right. It sounds like that's all of our county agents. Yeah, I know that we've also had some bacterial cankers and some fruit tree growers down here, too, with all the rains. And so all those diseases are just going rampant down here. If there's nobody else from the counties, we can move on to specialist reports. Hi, this is Brian. I'm filling in for PJ as well. He's doing Grandparents University, and he sent me a list of things to comment on. He says he's been seeing an increase in activity of Japanese beetle compared to last year, and he has seen decent numbers on grapes and roses, but hasn't seen or heard of any reports of significant damage. He said the biggest trending story is magnolia scale. He's been getting lots of calls and emails, and there's been some pretty significant dieback from that particular insect. Says the vulnerable juveniles will be out in late August and early September, and that's when you get the best control. It's also been getting some reports of woolly aphids. These are tiny and covered with whitish cottony fluff, as he calls it. And he said there are some species that like apples, alders, and maples that have shown up. Getting to folks' comments about wasps and bees, he said he's getting reports of wasp and yellow jacket nests, both above ground and below ground. And the best time to take care of those is before they get relatively big. And then he has also been getting some reports of spotted wind drosophila in the state and comments that it's time to check the raspberries. And that's his summary for the week. In terms of what I'm seeing here in the clinic, banner year for me compared to many, many years. We're up 35% over last year at this time. So we're running way, way ahead in terms of sample numbers. Because of the rain, we're seeing a fair number of leaf diseases, a lot of anthracnose, and a variety of different types of trees and shrubs. Also have an interesting disease called oak leaf blister. It's caused by a fungus that's a relative of the one that causes peach leaf curl. You get a little bit of a bubble on oak leaves. If you carefully look with a magnifying glass on the undersurface of the leaf, you'll see kind of whitish material that looks like granulated sugar, which are the little bags of spores that are produced by the fungus. And a variety of different fruit crops come in, mainly with canker issues, although we did have a strawberry that came in that had, in my mind, an awesome case of angular leaf spot. This is a bacterial disease. And it's actually one you can diagnose by eye. If you hold the leaf up to the light and you see these little, very light yellow angular areas on the leaf delimited by the veins, that's angular leaf spot. Also, some common leaf spot, which is the one that has relatively circular spots, about a quarter of an inch in diameter, somewhat leached center, and then a dark ring around the edge. Had some iris leaf spot that finally came in. I know some of you have reported on that before. That's the most common leaf spot that we see on iris. It's a little fungal leaf spot. And then a variety of vegetable things. Had an asparagus sample that came in with crown rot issues and got Fusarium oxysperm out of that. That's a quite beautiful fungus. When it grows in culture, it's got a very, very beautiful lavender color to the colony. There are many different variants of this particular fungus, and oftentimes they serve as vascular wilt pathogens. In fact, I got another isolate of Fusarium oxysperum out of tomato where it was causing wilt. In the case of the asparagus, it was causing more of a crown rot and rot of the lower stems of the plants. 
We've seen, again, angular leaf spot, which is a bacterial disease on cucumber, also some bacterial diseases on pepper, and then a variety of virus detections, both tobacco mosaic and cucumber mosaic, relatively weak reactions on tomato, also some cucumber mosaic on cucurbits. And then the interesting detect was what we suspect is something called leaf yellow strip virus on garlic, which causes some yellowing, particularly kind of blocky, blotchy yellowing on the leaves. And then on a sister sample that came in from the same grower, we had a salmon bulb or bloat nematode detect. This is a very, very destructive nematode that goes after the lower portions of the bulbs, tunnels in. You see a lot of dry rot associated with the colonization by this particular nematode. So those are kind of the highlights for the week. Any questions for me? Brian, I saw a really interesting sporulation of rust on a crab apple. Mm-hmm. Does that ever happen? Like on the fruit, it had the little protrusions and it was... Yeah, this quote-unquote cedar apple rust, which is a large group of rust, there are many variants of that. You can see that occasionally fruit on the apple fruits. We see it more commonly on the leaves. But, yes, you can see that on the fruits. All right. It was a really stressed tree, but it was really cool looking because all the yeah. fruits had sporulation. That's very, very interesting. So is a true apple tree? A crab apple. A crab apple. Okay. Where we typically see a lot of sporulation by one of these variants of cedar apple rust is on hawthorn. And that typically is truly cedar quince rust. It's a different species of the fungus, but that one goes very readily to hawthorn fruits, and you get those really spiny kind of salmony-colored fruits on a hawthorn tree. If you want to see that, come to Madison. There's a hawthorn right outside my building that's showing symptoms right now, or actually signs. You're actually seeing the fungus with that. Cool, Ian. Thank you. Other questions? Hey, Brian, one of those samples that you referenced, did you get anything from a grower up here on blueberries that you recall? I did have a blueberry sample. Yes, he was from your area, and I couldn't find much with those plants. I found a little bit of a leaf spot, which is kind of akin to an anthracnose disease, but no indication of root rot problems, no canker fungi that I could find in the branches that the person submitted. And so I did notice some intervenal yellowing on the leaves, so I was wondering if in part it might be a fertility or soil pH-related issue, so I suggested that he check that out. All right. Well, I was just out to the site yesterday, and he's got more and more plants showing these signs of leaf margin browning and almost canker-like sunken areas on the twigs, and then the whole bush just drops its leaves and looks like it's toast. He had underground irrigation, is that correct? Yep, yep. No, he's a new grower, and there's lots of issues there we can continue to explore. And Okay. I, I would look at watering as well to make sure that he's watering enough, but definitely I would check soil pH to make sure he's modified that appropriately. Again, we checked for root rot pathogens, certainly didn't see anything in what he submitted this time around. Do encourage him, though, to send in more materials we'll test as a follow-up for free since we haven't found anything. And how long have the plants been in the ground? These are about five-year-old plants. About five-year-old plants. Yeah, they're just getting into their fruit-bearing years, and there's healthy plants out in the orchard, whatever, but there's these plants that are just Obviously, something's going on, and there's more of them showing up. And I think he's fairly knowledgeable, and he's trying to keep up on things. But okay. we'll have to go out there and really rogue some plants out and start digging up stuff and maybe yeah. see more samples. All right. The other thing that they might check, because we don't check for nematode pathogens, might just see if there might be any nematode pressure. So that might be something to look at as well. All right, and that's something we can do kind of just with a hand lens? and. No, you'll have to send in a soil sample from those areas that are having problems. Okay. 
and then that would go to our nematode diagnostic lab. Same mailing address as my lab, but just to address it to the nematode diagnostic lab. All right. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Brian, I sent in a sample of an oak branch earlier this week, and we had done something earlier as well, and the customer had a tree arborist look and said, well, it's anthracnose and treated that way for two years, and now they're claiming it's oak wilt, and the customer still has a tree in decline and is concerned about losing the trees. And mm -hmm. I didn't know if you'd found anything new or not. No, I vaguely remember that sample coming in, and if it's the one that I remember, we're testing for oak wilt again. Uh -huh. And I believe there was some browning on the leaves of that one. I'm dredging my memory, but if it's the one I think. When did you mail that out? Because I think it arrived yesterday. Yeah, I believe I sent it on Tuesday. Yeah, okay. So I think it arrived yesterday, and we played it yesterday. We'll see if we get anything out. And then also there was some browning on the leaves of that. Again, it looked like anthracnose sort of things. But it'll be interesting to see if we get any oak wilt fungus out of that. We're actually testing a couple different ways. I don't know if the branch size was large enough on what you sent in for us to do our second technique. We have a PCR-based technique where we actually look for DNA of the oak wilt fungus rather than trying to grow it out. Well, we do both. We try to grow it out as well. And so we're trying to increase our ability to detect that particular disease using this other technique. Yeah, I remember in your letter asking for a two-inch sample, and the customer called and says, do you really need two inches? Because he was unable to get to any branches. That they were that large. Big. Okay. Yep. Yeah. He, he Again, that helps to... us with this other technique. It also gives us the opportunity to look for two-line chestnut borer, which can be another problem that can cause a lot of dieback. So a bigger sample would be helpful, huh? Yes, definitely. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Any other questions? All right. Well, thank you, Brian. I guess we can move on to Christelle with spotted wing Drosophila and looking forward to hearing about it since it's going strong right now. Hello, everybody. I'm going to talk to you about spotted wing Drosophila. I'm going to give you a fairly quick overview. So does everybody know about spotted wing Drosophila, or do we need to go a little bit in the background of spotted wing? I'm assuming everybody should know now, but I don't know if there's new people on. So anybody that doesn't know wants a little bit more background? Okay. We'll probably ask questions once you start. Sure, sure. But I'm going to go straight into where we've been detected and what we do at the lab. So I'm assuming everybody knows what the problem is with spotted wing, what are the fruits that are susceptible, all of that. So I just want to start by telling you that it was first detected in California in 2008. And recent numbers of crop losses are estimated now at $720 million annually. And the cost for managing for spotted wing are estimated at 130 to $170 million annually. So from 2008 that it showed up in California, I don't have the latest map. The last one I have was four states were missing, Arizona, Nevada, New Mexico and South Dakota, but I think now one of those has also detected spotted wing. So if you think about 2008 until now, I think we have three states that don't have spotted wing yet. And that's probably going to be all filled in by the end of this year or next year. So it's a very quick spread that this fly is doing. For last summer, our first detection was on June 30th in Vernon County, and I'm very disappointed this year because up until this year, our first detection was always in Vernon County. And this year, the board that's participating with our monitoring project did not send any samples. And I'll talk to you in a minute about that project. But first detection last year was June 30th. The year before was June 24th, so it was a year earlier. This year, 
we have June 28th and 29th. 28th for Pepin County, and I'll give you the list of where it's been detected this year, and Dane County, June 29th. So we're right about the same time every year as far as detection. So end of June is when we're showing that. I'm not sure that we are doing a great job at catching the first fly, so we'll have to see how that continues. So the project, the way it's going is we ask collaborators to participate. So we have people like Kevin Chaucer, Matt Stasiak in North County, but we have growers. So it's a combination of different people that are participating. Some people with expertise, some people it's their first year and they're more panicking, they're growers. It's not a perfect monitoring project in that sense for first detection. We do first detection for sure in those areas where we have people that are actively participating. The Dane County, obviously, we do the monitoring, so we know our dates. See, I'm going to tell you the list now of what we have confirmed for this year. So confirmed, we have Pepin and Dane, June 28th and 29th. Iowa, that's reliable to July 8th. Burnett County is a new county for us on July 10th, and that was confirmed. All of those are confirmed. July 10th in Door County with Matt Stasiak. July 11th in Toma, I'm suspecting that's a grower because I don't think that Bill Hassman has detected yet. Washburn County, I'm guessing that's you, Kevin, July 16th. And then Portage County, that's Walt on July 16th. And then we have one that is suspected is Washra. We're also right now waiting for samples from Vernon and Pierce County to confirm those counties. So those we don't know yet. So what I was going to say is we're doing this monitoring every year with volunteers, and what we got this year, Lisa Johnson and I, is an intern through UW Extension, through ANRI, and we have one of those interns, and she's in charge of the monitoring and of the phenology that we're doing for Dane County throughout the whole season, because we're still trying to track that, and I'll talk about that in a minute. We're still trying to track the whole phenology of spotted wings because it's such a new species for us that it could change. So we really want to know when do they show up, when do they peak, and when does the flight end. And that's been very interesting last year, and I'll talk about that in a minute. So that's been going well, except that our intern was out for several weeks, and she just barely got back, so she's trying to catch up. So if you've sent emails or samples, and please do that if you have any suspected flies, She'll be on top of it now, but there was a little gap, and I think that's why we lost some of our growers along the way as far as being on top of it for Vernon County especially. So those are the counties that are confirmed now. If you have any fruit that has larvae in them, there's a couple things you can do, but the best one is to rear the larvae all the way to adult. So we have recommendations on our website, and I'm sure you guys have checked out the website if you have spotted wings. And in those recommendations and their management, I made different recommendations that we updated this year, and those have recommendations for sampling, for monitoring, monitoring for larvae, for adults, all of that is in there. If you need to share that with people, it's pretty detailed. There's instructions, I mean, for rearing them out to adults, and those include putting fruit in a Ziploc bag, crushing it lightly, and letting the larvae emerge all the way to adults. The problem with that method is the larvae will drown in the liquid if there's too much liquid in the bag. So it's better to use a Ziploc container and to cut out the inside of the lid and put mesh, like cheesecloth or something like that. And then you put your fruit and you invert it and you lift that up a little bit. So it's pretty easy to make. 
But you lift that up a little bit and you raise it so there's a gap in between. So the liquid can drain. So the larvae will still stay in the food. Even if the food dries out, most of them make it, not all of them. Some will die for sure. But you should be able to rear them that way to adult. And then you can send us a picture or you can send us the flies. That's the easiest way. If you really want to know, you can also send us damaged fruit and then we'll rear them out. But we don't want to be doing that for tons of fruit because we have a ton of experiments going on also. That's what we have for the section this year. So I think we added just Burnett County this year. And I'm sorry, I didn't double check all of that this year. But as of the end of 2014, we had 33 counties that were confirmed, nine that were suspected. And like I said, I think now we have Burnett in addition. So I think we're at 34 probably now. So it's spreading, and it's spreading fairly fast. And it's also a question that we're not monitoring everywhere and we don't have people reporting. Like sometimes we have a random grower that will contact us and we can confirm, but we also have counties where people don't know anything about it or don't have a lot of fruit, so it stays between them and they don't report back to the university. So we can't say it's not in those counties that we haven't detected them at. It's just that we don't have anybody monitoring there. My suspicion is that they're everywhere where there is susceptible fruit. So that could be commercial fruit, but also those alternative hosts like honeysuckle, dogwood, all of those that are also susceptible for them. Mulberries want to, all of those. There's a long list of that. There's a recent paper that came out with a pretty long list of alternate hosts. So if we go back a little bit to the comment that Kevin was making, I'm not surprised that homeowners are starting to see them because really I think that they're slowly moving on to everything. And then I'll talk about that in a minute, but I had a master's student that was working on looking at the effect of landscape, so how much wood is present around the farm, and see how that affected the infestations. So when Kevin, you said something about these wooded areas, you can think about it in a way like it's isolated, so you don't think that you would have, because there's no other susceptible fruit nearby, you won't have spotted wings going there. But if you consider in the woods all those alternate hosts that are there that provide that gap in between those different cultivated crops, then it makes perfect sense that they would be there. Our numbers in wooded areas were really high and really late. So after your fall-bearing raspberries would be done, you would still have flies in the woods. So all of that is kind of saying that they are everywhere and they're pretty ubiquitous by now. We might have some areas where they're not yet, but it's just a question of time. So I can share my slide with Brian with those maps and everything. And the next slide I'm going to talk to you about is that phenology. So that one I think is very interesting to look at, and I'm sorry I didn't share that ahead of time, but I'll send that to Brian. Can yeah. I just make a comment about the woods and these isolated pockets? We were out to a grower yesterday, and he purchased those pheromone traps with, mm-hmm. with the pheromone in, and he never got them placed out in his blueberry patch. He just left them sitting on his deck up at his house, oh. 200 yards from his blueberries. It's not very close, but he just had them setting out on his deck outside, and we went out there yesterday, and they were just loaded only with fruit flies. So that pheromone is very specific. We've been using the yeast and sugar, and we're catching all kinds of other stuff in there. But these pheromones are really specific, and we were amazed that there was only fruit flies in there. But what we found just in our little looking into the liquid, there was spotted winged drosophila in those traps, and they were just setting out on his deck 
for maybe two weeks or something like that. So yeah. we're catching spotted wing drosophila that's not even anywhere near a fruit crop, and maybe it's that pheromone that's so good at attracting them. But it's just an observation I found interesting, which again indicates that, boy, I'm assuming it's just a matter of time and they're just going to kind of be ubiquitous and they're going to be almost everywhere. No, that's for sure. So we did a bait comparison with multiple states two summers ago now, and we used those trace pheromones, and indeed that's where we found the least non-target insects in the traps. So we know they're more specific, but the numbers are still similar than they would be with the yeast and sugar, and obviously they cost more, so that's why we're sticking with the yeast and sugar. But for sorting out and not affecting those non-targets, definitely they are very much more specific. So these have been identified those pheromones from the lab where I did my postdoc before. And what they did is they looked at what are the compounds in vinegar and wine that create or triggers an antennal response from spotted wing drosophila. So it's really the antenna responding to that. So they very much focused on the specific chemicals in the wine and vinegar that attract spotted wing. But of course, those are feeding attractants, so they also attract other drosophila, but they're very specific to those drosophila. So it's really nice for having to sort out what's in there. Did he put apple cider vinegar at the bottom as a drowning solution or water? I'm pretty sure it was apple cider vinegar. Yeah, it works better. So if people ask it's better with the apple cider vinegar. But that makes it a lot easier to sort out also and not having that goo of yeast and sugar. So, yeah, indeed, it works really well. And like I said, and you said, it's probably ubiquitous. Actually, my intern said that she had fun doing in her kitchen last summer. So they are pretty much everywhere. Okay, so looking at that phenology, what I want to point out is we were trapping last summer, and this summer we're doing it too. We just, after the, we started in, in May. So we trapped from when we should be seeing spotted wings because we have nice weather, we have susceptible fruit, including strawberry. So we start earlier, we start in May, and we don't see anything, and this is for Dane County that I'm talking about for this phenology. We didn't see anything last year until July 15th, which is the same about, no, this year it was earlier in Dane County, but July 15th last year. And the numbers are really low from July 15th until mid-August. So really low, I mean less than 20 per trap, 20 males, 20 females. For us, that's low. So the numbers build up slowly, and then mid-August all the way until end of September would be would constitute our peak. So we have kind of little peaks here and there, but we have very big standard errors, so there's overlap between all of those in the numbers because of some traps not catching anything and some catching a lot. The very peak, if we don't consider those standard errors, is the third week of September, and the numbers were at 250 females and 200 males per trap. But again, that's an average. So the numbers climb up pretty quickly once we're in mid-August. They stay around that range. We've had traps with thousands of flies in them. So why it is that in some places we have thousands, and in other places we have in the hundreds, low hundreds, I don't know. And it varies, too, if the grower is spraying, probably, so the management practices that they're applying, if they're controlling as much as possible or if they're just letting it go, what are the other crops and alternate hosts in the vicinity, all of that has an impact on those densities. So, again, a slow buildup, so nothing in the spring, nothing in May and June, 
low populations in July, climbing in mid-August all the way until end of September, pretty high numbers, usually more females than males, and then we have a decline from end of September. But the numbers are still in the 50s, males and females, in October. Well, we don't really have any more crops there. We probably have some alternate hosts that are fruiting, but we don't have a lot of crops. And these are crops that were in raspberries. So even though we don't have raspberries anymore, we're still catching flies in the crop. So there's no fruit, but there's still flies. And we were still catching flies. The last week we caught was November 11th. So November 11th, we still had flies about 20 or so in the traps, even though we had snow on the ground. It had frozen overnight a couple times, several times probably, and we still had flies in there. The two weeks after that, the 18th and the 25th of November, we were still trapping, and we didn't catch anything. Our bait had frozen. We put city cards to make sure that they weren't still coming in because there's still attractiveness from those frozen baits those little icicles of yeast and sugar, a popsicle, and we had no flies on those. So we suspect that the population had crashed by November 18th. But that's still really late, November 11th. So to recap, nothing in the spring. We have no idea why. No buildup of population, which would, to me would make sense if you consider that your population crashes in the winter and they are very slow at building back up. Once they build up, the populations explode. It's impossible to really separate generations. Very quickly, there's a constant overlap of generations where you can have at the same time eggs, larvae, and adults constantly throughout the summer. But then populations are maintained into October and early November, and they crash in mid-November. So that was the phenology for 2014. We'll see what happens in 2015. This was the first year that we went all the way into November where we wanted to reach the zeros. So what this is telling us here is that we don't know what's happening in the winter, so we're suspecting that they're overwintering. There's a study that is still not published but was presented at a conference where they showed that there is a winter morph for spotted wing drosophila. So what we see, what you've seen, is the summer morph and it's this tannish gold kind of fly with all the descriptives that you guys know. But then in the winter, they get darker and a little bigger. So they identified that, but it's in Oregon. So we wanted to see, because of all places, if there's a winter morph for them to survive the winter, Wisconsin would be a good place. Another thing that makes Wisconsin a good place, just as a side note, is our moderate summer temperatures. If it's too hot, People don't really see spotted wing. So this is what we have for Wisconsin. We have pretty much the perfect weather. And so our question, it's really our question this year, but we collected preliminary data last summer, so I'll talk about that. We wanted to see if we have that winter morph because we want to know what the implications for overwintering are going to be for a fly. So what we did out of our samples from last summer, and again, those are preliminary data, is for each month I asked my technician, Katie, to separate winter versus summer morph. And the way to separate them is very hard. It's already hard to identify the females. This is looking at the bending on the abdominal segment. And the fourth abdominal segment is entirely dark on the female instead of being half black, half brown. 
and on the male, it's the third abdominal segment. So it's a very tedious work. But Katie went through thousands of flies and identified the proportion of winter versus summer morphs. So in July, we're at 100% summer morphs and maybe one that could have been a winter morph, but probably was just a dark sample. August, 100% summer morph. September, when the photo period and the temperature start to decline, is when we get a switch to the winter morph. And that's been shown for other insects, where photo period and temperature will trigger those other morphs. So in September, we were at about 25 or so percent winter morph and 75 percent summer morph. October, 90 percent winter. And November, we had few weeks, but we were at almost 100 percent winter morph. So we do have that winter morph. And it seems to happen in September to switch. So what happens is the eggs that are laid by that summer morph in August and September, the eggs will hatch into adults later that are the winter morph. It's not the adults that change from one morph to the other. It's the next generation that will be like that. So this year we're redoing this because this was not set up properly. It was just for preliminary data. But what we're interested in, in addition to looking at that phenology and seeing when that winter morph shows up, is also doing dissections of those females to see how do they go into that winter morph. Are they fully mated? Do they have mature eggs? Are they ready to lay eggs? Or are we looking at winter morph, especially in November, that are going to have a lot of fat reserve and no eggs and are holding on to the reproduction, just thinking about overwintering, and then spending the winter with those fat reserves and no mating, no overproduction at all, no laying eggs, and then coming out in the spring with that reserve of eggs completely depleted in the fat, but then having those eggs to come out in the spring to start the new population. I've done work with Persilla and other insects that's a pest in pairs, and they have those winter morphs, and that's what they do. So we're interested in seeing how they do that, and then as they come out in the spring, those first flies we're seeing, are we seeing that winter morph? Or do those die out somewhere and we don't see them? So it's a lot of questions about what's going on in the winter and how that winter morph is going to help them sustain those colder temperatures and go through the winter. That study in Oregon that's not published, what they presented is that when they put some or more females at 1 degree Celsius and they looked at the time to 50% mortality, the some or more females took 20 to 30 days. The winter form females, to have 50% of them die, it took them 180 days. So they can sustain colder temperature for much longer. But again, that's not published, so I don't have all the information on that. So we're going to do more on that. The rest that I have is really all about management, and that's all in those recommendations. I want to say that there are new lures that are available commercially. So at Great Lakes IPM, you can buy the Tracy lures, which is probably what Kevin's grower had. But there's now also sentry lures, and those sentry lures are a better version of the tracé lures. So they come from the same lab, but they've been refined a little bit. They're a little more expensive. They're about $6 per lure from Great Lakes IPM, but they work really well too. And then there's going to be a new one that's not available yet commercially that comes from Europe. It's called Suzuki Trap, but it's actually a bait. It's a liquid base with similar, the yeast and sugar and all of that, but they claim in Europe that it works really well. And the Great Lakes ITM is trying to bring that here to be able to sell it. All of those lures are based on wine vinegar and fermenting base, some with yeast and sugar too. 
Okay, so I won't go through the different management methods because you guys should have that and you can ask me questions if you want to. There are some information if people want that. It's in my slides. Cornell and Minnesota have recommendations for homeowners where they have those lists of insecticides that homeowners can buy. The main one that homeowners should use is pretty much the equivalent of Entrust, the Spinozid, that's available commercially, so like the Bonite Captain Jacks. Those kind that have Spinozid are the best option for homeowners. The others are the hardcore insecticides, your carbamates, organophosphates. Those are the ones that work well, especially organophosphates. So the best for homeowners will be the Spinozid to use. So let me move on then. Very quickly, the intern that we have with Lisa Johnson did a Master Gardener seminar in Dane County, and she's going to turn that presentation into a webinar that we will make available to everybody. So if people want to watch the webinar, it has all the information that I put together for recommendation, everything, different crops, varietal preference, all of that that we know for now. So she'll do that, and we'll make that available. She'll do some short videos on how to make your trap, how to sample the fruit for larvae, how to identify, and maybe a couple more. Some work that we finished, my graduate student Emma Pelton finished this spring, and she did two studies. She looked at wine grapes and looked at the susceptibility of several varieties of wine grapes. And then what she found is that overall, if you damage the fruit, you're going to get fuddling those off that to lay eggs, and those eggs are going to develop all the way to adults, but they're going to develop slower than they would in raspberries, so that means that it's not as much of a suitable host as it is for raspberries, but it's still a very good host. But the skin has to be cracked for those table grapes that we tested. If it's not cracked, very few eggs, and only I think we got two adults out of the whole entire experiment for undamaged grapes. So those wine grapes that we tested don't seem to be susceptible. When she checked in the field and put traps there in those different varieties, she still caught a lot of flies. So if people trap and see flies in the grapes, I would highly recommend to them to not spray and check the fruit. Crack some fruit, especially if it's a little bit mushy, and see if there's larvae, and then take action. But for grape growers, it's very important to not take action because what we found so far, just those wine grape varieties, You'll have the flies in the grapes because they're ubiquitous. They could be there, but you're not going to be any larvae in your food or very, very little. So it wouldn't warrant using insecticides especially. So important to think about. We're going to test table grapes this fall. So I have an undergrad that's going to do a project on table grapes because we have growers that are still saying, well, you're telling me that, but I still have larvae in my fruit. In general, when they tell us that, we realize they were table grapes. And the skin is thinner probably on those table grapes, so we're going to test some of those varieties this fall. Another work that Emma did is she looked at the effect of landscape. That's what I was talking about earlier when I was talking about Kevin's comment. And what she found is that the amount of landscape on a farm, so she did it on raspberry, if there's a lot of wooded landscape around the farm, she found that you will find spotted wings one or two weeks earlier in the raspberries but then after that, if you look at other metrics for the population, so like the peak, the growth rate of the population, the peak of the population, and all of that, the abundance, the densities, all of that, nothing matters. It's only that they will be detected earlier if you have a lot of wooded landscape around your farm. 
but it washes out after that. So that was very interesting that there was a difference, but then it washes out. So this role should not worry about that. I was worried that we were going to tell them, oh, if you have wooded landscapes, you're in more trouble. They're not. They're going to have following earlier, but they're not going to have higher population. So that was kind of good news for me. And then this summer, we're going to test, again, the winter morph, like I said. We're going to test with Maxisiac star cherries, some varieties there. We're testing Aronia because we have growers that have reported spotted wing. We tried last year, but we did that with store-bought Aronia because it was after the fact. And because they were destemmed, then they were equivalent to damaged berries. So we couldn't really assess whether Helm's fruit is susceptible and the table grapes. That's all I have. Thank you, Christelle. Any questions? This is Jane up in Douglas County. I think I understand that you do still want to confirm throughout the state if it hasn't been confirmed yet. That's still very important. Yes, very much so. I want to be able to every year tell people where it's been found. And whenever, if it's just you have some flies or you have some larvae in the fruit, even every year, to be able to tell people and say, hey, now it's there. And we report that weekly on the Spadwingles of our website. So... If you want to help with that, just from what growers tell you and let us know so we can update that, we'll be very happy to do that. And so could you just really quickly reiterate how a sample should be brought in or sent to you? It's easier for us if you rear them out to adults. Which county did you say? I think you're not confirmed, I don't think. Yeah, Douglas, no. No, Douglas is not. Then send us either fruit with the larvae in it or then flies. If anybody has a trap, send us the flies. So if you send us the fruit... Just send it, you know, in a box and just ship it. Try to overnight it so it doesn't get all mushy because it's going to go quick. So you can put them in a Ziploc bag and just ship them that way, and then we'll take care of the fruit. If it's adult, put them in a little vial with ethanol and just ship those to us. Perfect. Thank you. You can also take pictures for the adults. The larvae, that won't help us because all Drosophila larvae look the same. But the adults, if it's the males, it's easy to the wings. If it's the females, you're going to have to take a picture through the microscope to really see the UOV positor. But I have a grower that did it, and it was great pictures. So if you have one, we can do that. And then we started an email address called Spotted Wing Rosophila. So what's nice about it is that if you email that and we'll start using that from now on, then everybody in our lab will be able to see it. So somebody will be able to reply if the person in charge is sick, like we had the problem with our intern lady. So... So yeah, just send it over. And you can also send to PJ if you send a package to PJ. He and I have been working together on that, so he confirms for a lot of people too. So, Any other questions? Well, this is Kevin. And just in the interest of time, I think, for everybody else online, I've been working with Christelle for a number of years on this, and I'm sure everybody out there has growers, either the homeowner people with the big patches or maybe commercial growers. And this is a game changer, I think. And I don't know, Christelle, what kind of feedback you're getting from some of our commercial growers, but I know for the few that we have up here, this is really catching them off guard and just unfortunate, but we have to help them understand the basic life cycle and some of the things that Christelle talked about with the phenology. The control and management options are really tough sells for most people because we are right now recommending spraying when there's existing fruit, when there might be blossoms on, and I don't think there's a single product that is recommended that isn't at least moderately toxic to bees. So that's another complicating factor here. So this is going to take a while for us to educate our clients, but it's here. 
we just have to do the best we can to walk them through the process. And there's no easy answers here, at least not that I've been able to share with the growers that I've been working with. So just kind of let you know it is what it is, but it's also a real bummer because raspberries is probably our second most popular backyard fruit to apples. And raspberries are just notoriously susceptible, in my opinion. So I'll just leave it there. And I'm looking forward to that webinar that you mentioned, Christelle. I think that's a really good resource. So I'm going to share the slides I have with Brian so you can have access to that. So you'll see some of those maps and everything. You're welcome to share that with anybody you feel like sharing it with. And then the webinar, obviously, will have a lot of that information, too. Any other questions? Hearing none, thank you everyone for joining us this week on the Wisconsin Horticulture Update. Next week, join us again when Lisa Johnson from Dane County will be hosting and Christy Stewart from the UW-Madison Department of Horticulture will be joining us to talk about attracting bees. 